Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. Three. There was a clear winner in this historic war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great, but you know, I, I want to thank you, first of all, for being a part of the NWO reunion. Uh, you joined me there in, in Orlando this past weekend. You know, you and I had a great time. I really had a great time because I think you're one of the most phenomenal talents I've ever had an opportunity to work with. Not only that, but one of the most intelligent, charismatic, insightful people that I've ever come into even close proximity to. So I just want to tell you what a wonderful human being I think that you really are. I know we've had our moments on the show, (laughs) but I really, really, really want you to know the esteem at which I hold you is above all others. Are you you doing this so I won't murder you about Halloween Havoc 95? Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we need to apologize right at the top for being a little late uh, in all of his travels this past week. Eric caught one heck of a cold, so we suffered through the 83 Weeks live show at the NWO reunion. It was a great time, but man, you were something serious sick. It was cough every other word. Yeah, the... uh... I ended up doing a red eye. I had some business in Los Angeles last week, and I was bouncing back and forth from coast to coast. And I ended up taking the infamous red eye, and they just kicked the hell out of me. And on top of that, I caught something on the flight, and it just waxed my ass. But I feel wonderful. I sound a little rough, but I feel wonderful when the cough is gone, so we're good to go. By the way, have I told you what a great radio voice you have? (laughs) No, you do. You you. You know, if there's there needs to be an award just for voice quality. Oh my god! I, I think you, I think you'd walk away with it. You know what's fun is off air. Uh, you told me that you didn't have a chance to watch this show until right before we were taping, and this is the first time you've watched Halloween Havoc since it happened. True or false? <laughs> True, and now I know why. I tried to watch it at the hotel because you know I originally had planned on taping the show over the weekend right and i wanted to watch it in the hotel but unfortunately the hotel we were in uh even though i had wi-fi i didn't have enough bandwidth uh to to get the the stream so i didn't get a chance to watch it really till i got home today and <sighs> well let's talk about it man you know we're gonna we're gonna break it down but just your overall impression you know i mean halloween havoc had sort of been the, uh, as you would say, a tentpole event for WCW for years at this point. But when you look back at all the Halloween Havocs, this one really stands out, does it not? It, it, yeah, in its own horrible way, yeah, it does. I mean, look, I'm, I, <laughs> it's one thing when you, 
when we do a podcast right after I've watched it, it's it hasn't. You know, if I would have watched it over the weekend and then we're doing a podcast, I would have had time to kind of think it through and, you know, try to explain why certain things happened. And, you know, but when you when you watch it right before the podcast, and especially this particular one, I mean, it, it really had a, it had an effect on me. And it's it's a learning experience. That's the way I look at it. You know, I look back at this and it's like, wow, I have certain very strong opinions today about wrestling and storytelling and characters that I clearly didn't have in 1995. And now I know why I have those strong opinions, you know, because looking at some of this stuff, it's just, it was a parody of itself. It was a parody of professional wrestling in so many ways. And then, you know, there's great talent on the show and the show had a lot of great potential on paper, but and it's not even the sumo truck. I mean, that was like the least offensive part of this to me, really. Um, offensive. It was the least ridiculous part, which is saying a lot because I know it was ridiculous. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it was the least ridiculous part of this particular pay per view. And it's just, it's amazing looking back at it. And ugh. well, you know, this. Is did, did, did I did I congratulate you and Megan on your marriage? And and how I just wish you two more happiness than you've ever experienced in your <laughs> life. And, and I. I really, really did. You get my gift yet? You uh, didn't. No, you will. I didn't. I'm looking forward to it though. And, uh, man, you're, you're going to have an interesting weekend to tell here because just a couple of days ago, everybody's running around praising you. You're the genius behind the NWO. It really is like the best of times and the worst of times because we've got the NWO celebration on Saturday. And now here on Monday, I got you <laughs> Halloween havoc 95. And the yet and the yete. It's uh wow. Let's get to it though. Halloween Havoc. It went down October 29th. So today, if you're listening to us on Monday, third uh 23 years ago. Yeah, how about that? Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. And uh this is the uh last time Halloween Havoc is gonna take place here. It was also at the Joe the prior year, but after this, you guys are gonna move to MGM Grand. Uh, the prior year, of course, is when you put Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair in a cage and it was a retirement match and there's all sorts of shenanigans. And now you're back here with Hulk Hogan and the giant. So on paper, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, and then the next year, Hulk Hogan and the giant sounds pretty good, right? Sure does. Sounds great on paper. How excited were you to move it from Detroit? to MGM grand. And I say that knowing that you're a Detroit guy, but at the same time, the association of Las Vegas and MGM grand certainly feels more big time than running Detroit, Michigan. Does it not? Yeah, it, it does. But uh, honestly, I wasn't that excited the first go around because I didn't know what to expect. Right. You know, moving to Las, there's a lot of variables in Las Vegas, you know, and I, I hadn't had any real experience in Las Vegas. We had done some clash of the champions there and, um, you know, I understood Vegas, you know, from a consumer's point of view, but I had, I had some trepidation going into it the very first year. So it wasn't like I was head over heels at the idea in the beginning. I mean, I was because I was instrumental in making it all happen, but it, it was not without certain reservations. And I, I liked, you know, I liked the Joe Lewis arena. I liked venues that had that history to them. Like, you know, Joe Lewis did and, and, and some big market cities do. So I was excited, but I wasn't, I was, I was nervous at the same time. 
Well, so here we are, you know, as you guys are getting ready and I guess we should catch everybody up. We're about a year and change, uh, into Hulk Hogan coming in. Of course, we've talked about bash at the beach from 1994, which was really the first major event with Hulk Hogan. And it was a big deal for WCW. Uh, it, when you, when you look back at the history of WCW, one of the most important moments ever, but here by October of 95, you guys are starting to sort of figure things out. Nitro has just been launched. There's lots of new things moving, but you're trying to find your own way, your own identity, uh, as is the word that maybe a head football coach would use at the end of September before your, uh, opportunity to watch the, in your house pay-per-view with the WWF. Vince McMahon and Bill Watts have a meeting with all the wrestlers and they say that you guys going on Monday nights wasn't good business. And he says that you could have put this show on Wednesday or Thursday and had the night to yourself, but instead you're going on Monday and you're showing that what's more important to WCW and billionaire Ted is to hurt Raw's ratings as opposed to trying to get the big numbers themselves. And he calls this a stupid move. When you hear that Vince sort of rallied the troops to say that Nitro being on Monday was stupid business. Were you like, uh, you sporting a shit inning grin? You had to love that, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, in retrospect, you know, now 2020 hindsight being the genius that anybody can be after the fact, you know, it was a stupid statement for Vince to make because it was one of the, it was a stupid decision that probably benefited him in the long term more than it benefited anybody else. Uh, despite the fact that he, you know, he got his butt kicked for, you know, almost two years in the end, after all was said and done, I, I think that, you know, going head to head in the Monday night wars probably benefited him more than anybody. So his stupid statement was a stupid statement in retrospect. At the time, you know, he made it. And when I heard that, um, you know, it, it was an obvious thing for him to say. He had to rally the troops. He had to try to hold on to his talent. He had to try to, to convince everybody that he was, you know, he was the righteous, you know, one in the equation. And, and Vid was, or Ted was the bad guy. That's typical, you know, that was a typical Vince McMahon move at that time. But it really wasn't about trying to hurt his ratings. It was about trying to build our own. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, to take a walk into the weeds, you know, if you think about, you know, the wrestling business in general and, and, and think about it as a fast food restaurant. If there's an intersection somewhere in Huntsville, Alabama, where everybody goes for lunch and all the better restaurants are in that intersection and you want to open up a restaurant, are you going to go 20 miles outside of town because you're the only one there? And there's nobody else out there? Or are you going to put your restaurant, if you think you have a great product, if you think you have a great idea for a restaurant, are you going to put your product where all of the customers are for, for, for food in a given day? Of course you're going to go where the customers are and where people normally go when they're hungry or they decide to go out to eat. That's where you want to be. And the logic was no different with, with Nitro. Sure, we could have gone on a Friday night and, and died we could have gone on a Thursday night, which was, you know, back in the day, put things in context, must-see TV on NBC. It was the worst night of the week yeah. to put anything on the air, no matter what it was. If you went on the air on another network other than NBC, you were dead on Thursday nights. And Monday night had Monday night football and, and, and Monday night raw, and that was a challenge for us. 
but there were no other really great nights. And the idea really was, were you know, the, the idea really was, look at the wrestling fans are watching wrestling on Monday nights. That's where the customers are. Let's go to where the consumers are, not try to find another night. That makes a lot of sense. And it certainly works in retail. You know, it, we have areas uh, where I travel, where it looks like it's gasoline alley. There's no gas stations for miles and miles. And now all of a sudden there's three or four here together, or there's a home Depot. And what do you know, right across the street, there's a Lowe's. So there is real strategy to being right where the other successful business is, because if one is busy or one, one doesn't have what you're looking for, well, we'll just go here. And Vince knows that everybody is going to be making that comparison, even the boys. And so during his address, he says that nitro going live every week is going to cost WCW like 150 grand per week. And for them to follow suit and make raw live every week, it would be an additional 135 grand per week. And they simply can't afford to do that. But he does say that by pre-taping the TV, they'll have an opportunity to plan their storylines out in advance and take what he called a Melrose place approach to television. And, um, yeah, he's trying to get the guys excited about not being live. Yeah, exactly. So chat me up from the best of your recollection. How close is he in 1995, 150 grand a week extra in order to be live, not just the cost of running the show, but what extra costs were there to afford you the opportunity to be live around 150 grand. Does that sound right? Yeah, I, I think that's probably pretty close. It might, that might've been a little light actually, because when we were, you know, shooting our shows before, uh, if you look at WCW Saturday night, so much of the talent was right there in Atlanta and not just wrestling talent, but all of our production talent all lived right in Atlanta. So we didn't have to travel hardly anybody. The cost of the venue was like a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken and a six pack of Mountain Dew. So that didn't even matter. Um, you know, there were very, very little costs associated with shooting shows in, um, in Atlanta, uh, particularly when you can shoot a couple of them at a time. Now, when you take the show on the road, I believe our costs, if memory serves me correctly, our costs for Nitro early on were right around 250. Um, and I, I doubt that. WCW Saturday night cost us a hundred. I, I bet you it was probably more like 50 to 75. So that $150,000 a week extra is probably a little light. The, uh, October 16th issue of fortune magazine ran a short story on the WWF WCW wars. And they point out that not only did Hulk Hogan and the macho man jump ship, so did slim Jim's. And they run a number here that lists the WWF as an $84 million annual gross. And Meltzer would say that's a fairly accurate figure. And then you're quoted in this story as saying that WCW hopes to do 50 million. Do you remember having a goal for 1995 or 1996 of 50 million being your top line revenues? Uh, well, 95, probably it was 50 million. And by 96, it would have been more than that. And that's the other thing is we're getting ready to go through the show and we're going to have a lot of fun with it because there's a lot of material to have fun with. There's, we have no choice. We have to have fun or, or I'll be hammered when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, context going into this, WCW wasn't really making any money at this point. Nitro had just launched. You know, the NWO was, you know, down the road. We still didn't have any licensing, you know, in terms of 
revenue. We had no merchandising to speak of in terms of revenue. Our pay-per-view numbers were still – they were edging up. They were getting better, but they were still far from where they were in 96, 97, and 98. So we were still really struggling to, to break even. And that was really the goal, whatever the number was, because I don't remember you know, what our, our target was for that year. But whatever it was, I, I, I guarantee it was probably a dollar more than break even was probably my goal because that was really that was my goal in the beginning is, look, let's just not lose money because that was really from from a Ted Turner perspective. And at that time in 95, he was the one calling the shots. Um, he felt that if we could continue to supply great content that draw eyeballs, that drew eyeballs to the network and it didn't cost anything, that was a huge win. And that really was my goal at that point, was just to break even. Let's talk a little bit about uh, guys who are sort of coming and going. Uh, it's reported on the WCW hotline that Warlord and Barbarian are going to be coming in as a tag team. I think Warlord only stuck around for a handful of matches with Barb. And instead, you guys put together Barbarian and Haku, Ming. Chat me up about why Warlord wasn't given a, a longer look in WCW? Don't know. You know, I wasn't really managing talent or, or working with talent too closely at that time. I mean, I was running the, running the company, but that was, that was really a Kevin Sullivan and team uh, shot. I, I wasn't calling those shots at the time. I was supporting the shots that they were calling, uh, but I tried not to get too deeply involved in talent issues uh, when it came to, you know, who we wanted to put over and who we didn't. Barbara and... and and Ming, no, I, I had no, I had experience, a little bit of experience with Ming, so I certainly knew a lot about him. I didn't know a lot about Barb, uh, hadn't worked, really worked with him a lot, so that, that was probably more of a Kevin Sullivan decision than mine. I know that uh, Warlord ultimately had to step away from wrestling for a few years after a car wreck that I think happened sometime in '96, but here in '95, that's the rumor that he's coming in, and Meltzer would also write about Sabu coming in. Quote, the big joke going around is that when Eric Bischoff met Sabu at the Miami tapings, he brought up having grown up in Detroit and watched his uncle wrestle and then talked about seeing his uncle lose the title to Hulk Hogan, confusing the Sheik with the Iron Sheik. Any memories of that? That's absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. I didn't watch. Um, I mean, I, I was familiar. I was like I was six or eight years old at the time. So, um when I was really watching wrestling in Detroit. Um, I don't recall watching the Sheik lose a belt to anybody. So I think, again, as is often the case with these types of stories, and I'm not even going to single out Dave on this one, you know, there's a kernel of truth sure. to it. You know, the, the, the part of it that was true was um, Sabu, you know, meeting me, talking to Sabu in, in Miami. I was excited about bringing in Sabu. I knew of his relationship with the Sheik. I remember Sheik, you know, being a big deal in Detroit, which is one of the reasons that I wanted him in Detroit, uh, because I wanted to take advantage of some of that local market um, history. If there was any value to it at all, I wanted to take advantage of it. But me having a conversation with Sheik and talking to him about watching him lose his match, you know, to Hulk Hogan is fabricated nonsense. Let's talk about where the business is, because even though people take a dump on 95 and Lord knows I have fun doing that business is still way better than it was before your average attendance in October of 94 was 2,400 fans. You're up to 2,930. So that's a 22% increase. Your average gate 
it's actually down a little bit. You're down from 32,000 to just 31,000. You're not selling out any house shows and ratings are down a little bit, but there are more fans there. Um, where would you say, you know, is the right word for your feeling on WCW in October of 95 hopeful? I mean, you're right here at the launch of nitro. You've got Hulk Hogan. You've got macho man. If it's not hopeful, what is the right word? No, we were very optimistic. Uh, you know, I was, I, I was very positive about WCW and so was management above me, by the way. And you're right about the numbers from rep and it's you know what I was kind of referring to a few moments ago. From a revenue point of view, we certainly hadn't found our sea legs yet. There was nothing to write home about from a revenue perspective at all. But as we discussed on other shows, there were a lot of other indicators that were moving in our direction. You know, Slim Jim was a big one, you know, that you, we've talked about before and you mentioned in the article that you referenced here. You know, to have a major sponsor like that, and it was almost a seven-figure deal. I think it was like seven hundred fifty grand for the first year. That's a, That was a huge, huge win for us because WCW had never had one sponsor for $750, more or less $750,000. So when you can attract a national advertiser and sponsor for, for the very first time based on nothing but the strength of your brand and the people associated with it, specifically Randy, that was a huge win internally for us. Uh, and there were other indicators. You know, ad sales was beginning to get a different reaction when they brought up WCW, primarily because of Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. So those decisions to bring in that talent, uh, hoping it would change the perception of wrestling, were beginning to have an impact. You know, and again, from an advertising business-to-business perspective, you know, the, the, the strategy of shooting our, our syndicated shows down at Disney MGM Studios and leveraging as much as we could out of Disney from, you know, the Mickey Mouse ears and the logos and the opening of the show and shooting a lot of scenes in and around the theme park. Those, that, that was another thing that even though wrestling fans hated it, it didn't really have a, you know immediate impact on our revenue, uh, our bottom line. It certainly did have a big impact on our perception within the ad sales community. So there were a lot of things that were all of a sudden now starting to feel much more optimistic about WCW than we'd been able to feel in the past. And certainly Nitro launching and, you know, the limited success that we had it with it at this time when we're talking about you know, Halloween Havoc in 95, that was another shot in the arm for us because, you know, we went into that having no idea whether we'd fail miserably or, or be able to hold our head up and say, well, at least we're competitive. It was an unknown. We certainly had read all of the dire predictions sure. you know, that were out there in the dirt sheets You know when we launched um, Nitro just about a month before this pay-per-view. And to fa- the, the fact that we came out of it and were competitive, and in some cases more than competitive, um, gave us a big shot in the arm, although it still didn't have any impact on the revenue. But there were, there were a lot of reasons to be optimistic at Halloween Havoc in 95, despite the Yeti. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about it. You, you brought Nitro up, you know, being uh, optimistic and, and excited that you were at least competitive. On October 2nd, Nitro got a 2.5 and so did Raw. The next week, though, on October 9th, Raw would get a 2.6 and Nitro gets a 2.6. So we've got two shows back to back, head to head. October 16th, it's a different story. Now Nitro has a 2.6 and Raw has a 2.2. 
that would flip flop on the 23rd and nitro would have a 2.2 where raw would be at a 2.6. And that's the go home episode for Halloween havoc. Just in case I forget the night after this pay-per-view, uh, nitro gets a 2.5 and raw does a 2.2. So it does win the nitro head to head after this pay-per-view. Let's talk about Meltzer. He's talking about other talent. That's uh, rumored to come in here. WCW won't be allowing Chris Benoit or Brian Pillman to wrestle the Stu Hart show on December 15th in Calgary because WWF wrestlers are appearing on the show. You would think for a show to benefit a guy like Stu Hart, that groups would leave politics out of it, but that would be asking too much. Bruce Hart, who is largely putting this together, was also interested in getting Lex Luger and Randy Savage. That doesn't age well. What's the thinking behind not allowing WCW talent to appear here at a Stu Hart benefit show? The general rule of, of thumb was we, we did we can't afford to have we couldn't I should say I talk like it's the, the present tense because I just got done watching it we couldn't afford to have our talent wrestling on shows that had nothing to do with us you risk injury we're the ones that are guaranteeing contracts if those wrestlers would have gotten hurt in any way we still have to pay them and it's one thing to take that risk on your own shows where you're supporting your own brand and your own content but to just let your talent go and work other people's shows was, you know, I understand politically, you know, how it may not have been the greatest idea from a public relations point of view, but from a risk management point of view, which was a bigger consideration when you're paying guys six figures, it made absolutely no sense at all. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. You know, and I know some people are going to hear that and get fired up about it, but realistically from a, a sports business standpoint, it's not that different than if you had a major NFL contract, that guy can't even go ride a motorcycle. He can't bungee jump. There's certain things that are laid out in his contract that he can't do because they don't want to risk their investment. So it makes total sense to me that you might not want them wrestling somewhere else. Let's get to Halloween havoc. There's 13,000 folks in the building. It was set up for 18,000, uh, but you guys block off some of the empty seats and s- announce that it's a sellout for, you know, PR purposes. Meltzer would say only 7,000 folks paid though, uh, but the gate's still not that bad. 138,000, 40 bucks. Take me back in your, your time machine here. Do you remember being disappointed in the gate or having a strong feeling one way or another? No, I wasn't disappointed in the gate. You know, my expectations, again, you, you know, context, go back to 93, 94, you know, just 24 months prior, you know, to get 7,000 people that would actually reach in their wallet and buy a ticket to a WCW event was a win. It wasn't what we wanted. And, you know, compared to 96 and 97, 98, it was certainly, you know, not a big number, not a big attendance. But, you know, at that time, Again, we were still growing. We were really a, a, a relatively new company at that time. And I wasn't disappointed at all. You know, of course, we would, we would have loved a bigger number. You always do. You always want more people or a higher gate 
or higher ticket price that people are willing to pay. But again, at that time in 1995, for a company that a year before that, you know, would have a hard time giving tickets away, it right. really wasn't that bad. Here's an interesting little fun fact for you. You ran a promotion where anyone who bought a WCW calling card at the area 7-Eleven gas stations and convenience stores got a free ringside ticket to the show. Uh, and a lot of people are going to hear that and uh, totally dump on the idea, but let's go back in time. And the WWF did this in January of 97 for the Royal rumble, where they gave away free seats at Taco Bell and on cans of Dr. Pepper. Um, it was a different time here. Is it not? We are far, far, far away from the days of the sold out shows and the NWO or so it feels, but it's only going to be like a year away. Right. Right. And that's, you know, really, that's the fun thing about, you know, doing this show with you and doing things like we did, you know, this past weekend, the NWO reunion, because you, especially when you're in a long format, like the Q and A's that we had this weekend, you, you get a chance to kind of put all of this in a in an organic context you know i'll i'll kind of force the issue every now and then in our conversations on this podcast but if you step back in time and you just look at the wrestling business of 95 you know look at the stuff wwf was doing on tv you know it was some pretty cornball horse shit yeah just like ours ours was too i mean wrestling but it's because the audience was the expectations of the audience was much different you know, the things that had worked in the three and four and five years prior, you know, that we all reached back to in our bag of tricks uh, were much different, you know, in the early 90s than they were in the mid to late 90s. So the, the, the quality of the product or the techniques that you use to promote it or the gimmicks that you try, you know, whether it's giving away, you know, ringside tickets on a can of Mountain Dew or whatever it is or a 7-Eleven or a Taco Bell. You know, you're trying because we had to fight. Right. You know, WWF had to fight to get people to buy their tickets too. They their business was not exactly stellar at the time either. They were struggling with house shows domestically, which is why they spent so much time overseas because that was the only place they were really making good money. So you, as a promoter and as a business, you're doing everything you can to get your product in front of people. And you know, looking back at it now. Wasn't something that you prefer. You have to do, but certainly, you know, with the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that walk through a Taco Bell or a Seven Eleven, if they see an opportunity to get something for free by buying a product, it, you know, that's a customer that you might not otherwise get. So it it made sense then. I understand why we did it. It's unfortunate that we had to, but we did. Yeah, and let's talk about the actual matches because I feel like. You know, no, that, let's not. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to have <laughs> no, fun. I'm, just, with I'm kidding. I'm just avoiding the, the inevitable. There is a lot of good talent on the show before we just totally dump on some of the matches. And Eric, I want to mention here, uh, I caught myself a minute ago. We were talking about this as if it were the day before a nitro. This was a rare Saturday night pay-per-view before it became commonplace for the show to happen on Sunday. And we saw that occasionally with the outdoor shows like a hog wild, and you would do a series of matches that aired on TV for free as a way to sort of build some last minute hype. And you did that here. And there's a series of matches that were on that show. Eddie Guerrero and Disco Inferno, Paul Orndorff and the Renegade, Benoit and Malenko took on the blue bloods of Lord Steven Regal and Bobby Eaton. Uh, Craig Pittman was in there with VK wall street. What's the strategy 
and or what's the thinking? And are you guys just trying to hard sell the pay-per-view at that point? Or is it we can kill two birds with one stone and save a TV taping somewhere else and we've already got all the production staff here, why not? Carry me through that strategy. No, it really wasn't a cost-saving analogy or analysis. It was more of a promotional tactic. The idea it was a pretty simple idea. The idea being that you've you know I don't remember what WCW Saturday Night's ratings were at this point. Probably in the two point two, two point five, call it a two point okay, uh, rating area. Uh, assuming a rating point, you know, is worth probably nine hundred thousand homes at that point. You were looking at the possibility of being in 1.8 million homes and using that television show to, it was like an infomercial is really what that was. And you had two hours, whatever it was, to use that show um, to build anticipation and hopefully convince somebody that's watching it who otherwise was not going to, to watch that pay-per-view. So it really wasn't cost savings as much as it was, you know, an attempt to find a way to hook the audience and convert them to a pay-per-view. Meltzer gave uh, Eddie Guerrero and Disco Inferno in their three-minute and 21-second match a star and a half. Uh, Paul Orndorff beat the Renegade after two pile drivers, and he gave it a dud. Uh, He noted in the Observer, Renegade's body has changed a lot, and this is probably his last WCW appearance for a long time as they're sending him back to wrestling school. Uh... Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko, as we said, beat Steven Regal and Bobby Eaton in eight minutes and 41 seconds. Meltzer loved this one, gave it three and a half stars. And then Craig Pittman took on VK Wall Street, got the win in three minutes and 37 seconds, and only gets a quarter star. Let's get to the pay-per-view, though. It feels like every pay-per-view for about three years started with a Johnny B. Bad match, and this one is no different. He wins the WCW television title from Diamond Dallas Page, and they get plenty of time here. I think you could argue maybe even too much. 17 minutes and one second. Uh, what'd you think? You saw this for the first time in a long time. Um, again, hey, it's, it's so interesting because now I'm looking at these matches from an entirely different perspective. Um, and with the benefit of, you know, 20 years of experience under my belt, I guess, good and bad. But I, I watched this, and be, you know, especially because it was DDP and he's a friend of mine. It reminded me exactly of the reason that I stripped him of all of his gimmicks, and 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 he, he was like a kaleidoscope of gimmicks in this match, and it made absolutely no sense. You know, he had his wife, great, um, not unusual. Didn't really need her. You know, a, a valet is one thing, especially at that time. But he had Max Muscle. The fuck did he need Max Muscle for? Right. Max couldn't talk. You know, Paige was, you know, whether you liked his promos or not, he was certainly not shy about cutting a promo, and he was quite capable of doing it. But, you know, he had every gimmick under the sun. You just look at his ring attire. It looked like something that you would pick up at Kmart. And, you know, the materials at Kmart and take it home and, you know, your 12-year-old next-door neighbor would fashion a you know, ring gear out of it. It looked really cheap and and gaudy. And Paige was way too over the top as a character, in my opinion. And, again, it just reminded me, you know, if anybody's listening to this that's a, a young, aspiring, you know, wrestler on the independent scene, this go back and watch this match on the WWE Network. This is a perfect example of 
less is more. Look at Diamond Dallas Page and remember three words, less is more. And it's one of the reasons Page went on to become such a, a, a big star and a talented guy, ended up in the WWE Hall of Fame as a result, because he learned that he didn't need all of those gimmicks. Those gimmicks are distracting. They really, really are, because especially in this match. If you go back and watch this match, you know they're trying to force a spot with with Max Muscle, whatever his name was. Didn't need it. That match didn't need that spot, but because he had him as his manager or whatever he was, of course they had to force some some spots into the sequence, you know, for him to make sense of him being there. But it didn't need it. It really, really didn't. You know, it, it just. That's what it reminds me of. Less is more. Now, on the bright side or the more positive side of it, I think the overall quality of the match, you know, Paige's ring work, you know, his his bumps looked great. His selling looked pretty good. He wasn't really as anxious to sell as he probably should have been at that point. But he was still evolving, too. He, he went from being a manager to now becoming a wrestler. He certainly wasn't at his peak as a performer. But that being said, he was still pretty damn good. And Johnny B. Bad, you know, we saw some stuff out of Johnny in this match that, you know, even today, looking back at it now, by today's far more athletic standards, which, you know, we all agree, you know, wrestling, wrestlers and, and performers in WWE in particular and on the independent scene have gotten far more athletic and skilled. That being said, Johnny still looked pretty good in a couple of spots. You know, he had some great drop kicks, very believable. His timing was great. Um, the rest of it was was just too much. The setup for it, you know, he had a flat tight, you know, that we saw in, in the in the setup for this match or on WCW Saturday night, he got screwed out of a out of a match with Sting because Max Muscle flattened four of his tires. Ooh, that was cringeworthy. You know, but but just the actual ring work I thought was pretty damn good. For what it was. I got to tell you, it made me laugh because that's old school Southern wrestling. He says he comes up with like, uh, you know, uh, tire grime on his face and, and clothes and says he had a flat tire. And then Max muscle accidentally slips up and says four flats. And then Mero realizes, Hey, I never said how many and it's on. It was pretty funny. And how about this? Meltzer liked the match. He gave it three stars. And he even said, and this is rare. You got to appreciate Meltzer was not always a DDP fan, especially in this era. Pace did a great job early bouncing around like Terry Funk outside the ring, including getting punched with a bucket over his head. Uh, they also mentioned that, uh, page used Hunter Hearst Helmsley's pedigree move that they called the pancake here. And allegedly a phone call would come in where he would say, Hey man, would you mind not using that? And what do you know? The diamond cutter became the only move that he tried to finish folks with after that. So there you go. A little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain, three stars, max muscle, chat me up. Where the hell did he come from? Why didn't he wrestle? When did you realize this dude's got to go? I have no idea where he came from. I have no idea why we brought him in and I have no idea where he went. <laughs> But I'll tell you one thing. Anybody that would wear that singlet to the ring with those shoes has my respect, at least on some level. The guy looked fucking ridiculous. I do like that you say that, and you know, on Bruce's show, we call it the box of gimmicks. That it feels like DDP has reached into the box of gimmicks and he has pulled absolutely everything out. Now, unfortunately, you guys had a chance 
to uh, talk about anything after this match, but instead you have Tony and Bobby talk about this fucking sumo truck match. And they're talking about how they've never seen the giant wrestle only choke Hulk Hogan. And they don't know how good of a driver he is because we have to talk about their driving ability because they're also in a monster truck battle. And Bobby says he's not sure Hogan even has a license because he takes limos everywhere. And he teases that both men could die if they drove each other off the roof. When you saw the hype for this for the first time in a long time, did you immediately regret this entire concept? No, because I remember what I was thinking going into it. And again, now context is king. And there was a reason for it. And I was excited about that reason. And I believed in that reason. And I was willing to take the risks the risks that I knew we were going to be taking from a wrestling fan's perspective. But I had, I, I knew a long time before this that if I tried 10 things, um, the wrestling audience was going to hate nine of them just by default, whether they were good, bad, or ugly. So I, I wasn't really worried about the criticism I was going to get for it because I, I saw a bigger opportunity or thought I did. And I was convinced I was right. So I really wasn't worried about too much of anything. And I'll be honest with you, when I listened to this commentary today with Bobby, um, I, it made me really appreciate what an artist he was. Because Bobby didn't, you know, Bobby wasn't, it wasn't like he was in the office all week long and he had a chance to hear, you know, what we were thinking and what the strategies were and all that. I mean, he wasn't a part at all of the creative process. He would get to the building you know, he'd look at it, get his format about noon or one o'clock, you know, walk through it. And he would ad lib so much of his stuff just because he could, because he understood the basic psychology. He knew what his job was as, as a heel commentator. Uh, he had to stay in his own character. But if you listen to him, you know, some of it's funny. Some of it you knew he was saying kind of tongue in cheek. And maybe it's because I know Bobby or I knew Bobby. And I knew it probably pained him in some some ways to have to put some of this stuff over because it was really antithetical to everything that Bobby was. You know, Bobby was a traditional guy. Bobby grew up in, in wrestling in the 60s and the 70s, you know, and obviously in the 80s. And he was still very traditional in in terms of how to get characters over and his approach to it. So for him to have to put over this monster truck thing, I actually thought he did a hell of a job given what he had to work with. Well, let's talk about somebody who didn't want to do a hell of a job and that's Kamala. He's supposed to be taking on Randy Savage here, but instead he quits the promotion earlier this week rather than doing a job and they call in the Zodiac. Yes. No. Yes. No. And he takes the elbow drop off the top from the macho man in a minute and 30 seconds. Meltzer would write. The only excitement was when a fan hopped the rail and he escaped when referee Randy Anderson tried to hold him back. It brought out tons of security and it turned the fan into the biggest baby face on the show. Meltzer would write Savage to his credit immediately took the match outside, getting as far away from the real action. So the cameras didn't see the fight inside the ring and Savage was working here with a detached tricep, which is a pretty serious injury that he should be out of action for, but he still made the match. And uh, Bobby was trying to sell the big crowd pops for the fans as being for Savage. Meltzer gave it a dud, which I guess is really all you could do, but there's two interesting things to talk about here. One, Kamala quitting, and two, the fan jumping in the ring. Let's start with Kamala. What do you remember? 
Yeah, I remember him quitting. It wasn't a big deal to me. I mean, I Kamala was one of those guys that we brought in because we were trying to resurrect, you know, the the, the formula for success that worked back in the early '80s, mid '80s, uh, and it clearly wasn't working. By by Nitro, I was already getting to the point where I, it was just very beginning, you know, getting to the point where I was seeing that the the 80s formula, you know, revisiting the 80s wasn't going to work. We were still doing it. You know, we're still guilty of it, much as painful as, as it is for me to go back and look at now. But when Kamala quit, I was more relieved than anything because I just did not see it. It just, there was nothing there. What about the fan jumping in the ring? Do you ever, I mean, you had a, a heck of a run with a ton of heat with the NWO. This is really one of the first times that we see that type of thing. And it's still a year before the NWO. Uh, what'd you think when you watch this back and you see a guy jump the rail like that? Uh, you know, it's it, look, it happened. Everybody likes it. You know, they've always liked attention. People want to be a part of the show. I think that's particularly true at wrestling events. Um, I'm sure the guy had probably had a couple beverages beforehand. Yeah, it was, it wasn't that unusual. It doesn't. It doesn't. It didn't stand out to me. What stood out to me was how fucking ridiculous Zodiac was. I mean, that was. A, <laughs> that I mean, when he was walking through the curtain and doing that YMCA gimmick with his arms and pointing up at the sky, it was like, oh my god! I don't know how stoned he was. Hopefully, he was, but um, that was just so bizarre. Just bizarre. I don't know why, but, uh, it tickles me when you get fired up about Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake, because we have that in common. So next we've got mean gene in the back with the new TV champ, Johnny B bad. And he's cutting an inspirational promo about dreams coming true and corks popping the night to celebrate. And gene wants to have some Greek food tonight with bad and offers to sing some little Richard in honor of his victory. I know that. Dusty was really high on this gimmick. You watching this after all those years, though, what'd you think? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I love Dusty. We used to go hunting together. You know, he loved to dove hunt. I love dove hunting with Dusty or deer hunting with Dusty or sitting around drinking a beer with Dusty and talking about old stories. And I really miss Dusty. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look. Well, I, I don't know what to say. It was a tired gimmick. I understand why, you know, everybody was excited about it, or at least Dusty was, because again, you know, again, it's ninety four, it's ninety five, ninety three, ninety four, ninety five. That's when Johnny was was coming along. Just a couple of years earlier in WWE, it was that type of character that was working. So it, yeah. it's not a stretch of the imagination as to why, you know, Dusty was excited about it. And now we look back at it, you know, 23 years later, and it's, you know, so cornball and laughable. But at that time, it really wasn't that far off from what was working. Look, look, Mark Merrill ended up going to WWE shortly after this. So clearly Vince McMahon didn't think it was that horrible either. He didn't, he didn't, go, he didn't go as Johnny B. Bad, but... No, he that's what he wanted. He wanted Johnny B. Bad. He didn't realize until he signed him that he couldn't do Johnny B. Bad. So there you go. I learned something new every day. That's why I like working with you. Uh, you and Guy Evans, my two favorite people in the wrestling business. I read his book. I learned something new. I do a podcast with you. I learned something new. But, you know, that it, it, 
it's 23 years later. It's corny as hell. And it's kind of, I'm sure when Johnny looks back at it, he goes, oh, God, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Sure. But in 1995, yeah, it's not that far off. Kurosawa is out next working with the road warrior Hawk and road warrior Hawk loses, which is a pretty big deal. Road warriors weren't losing a lot uh, on pay-per-view or television for that matter. They only go uh, three minutes and 15 seconds. Meltzer would say Hawk didn't look bad for a change being very aggressive. I guess since he was the one doing the job and Kurosawa didn't even get a chance to look horrible. And his offense consisted of suplexes, which at least he's good at. Uh, he only gave it one star though. And obviously they had to have a little bit of help. Uh, they have uh, sort of a, a, a silly finish here where Colonel Parker is holding the legs down for added leverage and he's got his legs on the rope. What'd you think of the match? It is sort of weird to see a road warrior doing the job. Do you remember any sort of backstage negotiations to make that happen? No, and that was really, a, there was no backstage negotiations to make it happen. That was a new Japan, um, favor. You know, we were bringing Japanese over to the U S to get exposure here, especially some of the young guys. Uh, in this case, it, I think the, the logic was let's bring Kurosawa over here. Did get him a chance to work in front of an American audience because new Japan wanted a lot of their talent to learn an American style, uh, give him a win and then bring it back, um, to, to Japan and let Hawk take it from there. You know, at least that was the formula that we had worked with, with other people like that. So Kurosawa was a new young talent that new Japan was very high on. And clearly Hawk was a guy that was working in Japan quite frequently with new Japan. So it really wasn't that difficult It probably looked that way to people that write about it, but it, it, it was business. Next up. And they, be, they, and they beat the hell out of each other, by the way, you go back and, and look at that. It was a very physical match. Um, they, they, they were, especially Hawk, he was pounding the hell out of Kurosawa. I love the uh, promo that comes up next with uh, Randy Savage. He's doing a promo with Mean Gene, and Gene tries to ask him a question, and Randy cuts him off and yells, Your mustache is crooked! Which, I don't know why, just cracked me up. Uh, this was a fun promo, and I miss the Macho Man. Of course, they're talking about hyping up the uh, Hogan Giant match later tonight, and of course, he's going to be watching through the video scope. What do you think the of this? That's honestly, I, I was thinking the same thing that you just said. When I watched that, number one, I was laughing out loud, and I'm in, in my office by myself, I'm laughing out loud like a village idiot, because Randy just he was, and none of that was rehearsed. That was just Randy. That was like you know, three, two, one, go. And he probably didn't think about that promo for more than six seconds before he got the countdown. And that's what was so magic about Randy is he could be so entertaining in a spontaneous, in a spontaneous way. That's the talent that I really, really miss being the age I am as a wrestling fan and growing up watching wrestling when I did. Because that's the magic to me. That's what made talent talent, made people special. He was so funny in that promo. And when he... When he ended up saying, I'm going to watch it in the video scope, you know, and walked off the set. It was like, God damn, that was magic. I really miss that. Well, I enjoyed the next match just because of who was in it, but I can't wait to get your take. Sabu pinned Mr. JL. And of course this is Sabu and WCW. This is a big deal, especially at the time he had become a bit of a tape trading legend and underground sensation. Everybody was talking about him breaking tables. And there was a ton of buzz around him. And believe it or not, Al Snow 
And he pins Mr. JL here. Of course, he's going to go on to be Jerry Lynn, the whole effing show. They only get three minutes and 25 seconds, but Sabu wins with the Arabian moonsault. And uh, Meltzer says, give them credit for foresight and time management. They have Luger and Ming go 13 minutes, and these guys get three. It was a hot, short match. Sabu used an Asai moonsault on JL and nearly wiped out the Sheik, who was at ringside in the process. Since Sheik is pushing 70 and can barely move and suffered a heart attack in the spring, I was scared to death seeing him go down, but he was okay and even threw fire at JL after the match. Two and a half stars. What'd you think? I thought the match sucked. And, you know, I want to just kind of go back a little bit what you said, you know, the, the buzz and, you know, all the talk of the town about Sabu. He wasn't to the mainstream audience. You know, to the average wrestling fan, not the hardcore, you know, one percenter or five percenter um, or the people, you know, the, the 275 people a week that watched DCW at the time. Nobody knew who he was. And and again, I'm, I'm talking about the, the general mainstream audience, not not the hardcore uh, newsletter audience at that time. So it wasn't like he was a big hot commodity. Number one. Number two. You know, they should have only had three minutes because they didn't tell a story. It was just one meth monkey move after another. And there was nothing really interesting about that match other than watching, you know, the car crash. If you liked car crashes, I don't think 17 or 18 minutes. You know, granted, I will admit, you know, the main match with Luger shouldn't have gone as long as it did. But, but that being said, giving these guys 17 minutes would have made even less sense. They didn't sell it anything for each other. I want to circle back to something. I feel like you just created a new term. I, I've heard the phrase spot monkey before, which is normally where there's a lot of hot spots. Did you just say meth monkey? Yeah, they look like monkeys on meth. Wow. All right. Roll Can't time. wait to see Sabu at the next autograph signing. I don't think <laughs> You know, for some reason, I don't think he listens to podcasts. I could be wrong. No, I think you're probably right. Um, of course, Sabu is going to go on to continue his, uh, his run and become a cult icon in ECW, but he did wrestle Alex Wright on the second nitro, which we've talked about that maybe was supposed to happen on the first nitro, which is available in the archives. And he won the match by pin, but the decision was reversed when he put Wright through a table after the match. And his last match in WCW is against disco Inferno and Sabu said he found out he was fired on the hotline. And he never received a call, a FedEx, or anything from WCW. He called the hotline to find out about it when other people told him that he was on there. And then he called you, and you confirmed the firing. So I, I think it's kind of funny. It's super wrestling-like that he had to pay to find out that he was fired. What do you remember about his firing? I don't remember any of the above. He never called me. You know, and, and look, and I don't want to beat up on Sethu. You know, I don't really, I don't have anything against Sethu, honestly, at all. When I the limited amount of time that I worked with him, we got along just fine. There was, there was no tension or there was no issue at all between us. But a lot of times these guys that tell these stories, especially the ones that have been chemically inclined for as long as they have, they come up with shit that I've never even heard of before. He wouldn't have called me. I didn't deal with talent. You know, there was a couple talent that I dealt with. If it was Hulk or, you know, Randy at the time, we're talking about 95. Um, sure. You know, Lex, Sting, those are guys that, you know, had my phone number. And if they had something they wanted to talk to me about privately, would pick up the phone and call me. I guarantee you, Sabu didn't have my phone number. 
Uh, Jerry Lynn under a mask. He's here as Mr. JL. I know you weren't really handling talent relations at the time. Did you see anything in Jerry Lynn while was he under a hood? What can you tell us about Jerry Lynn's cup of coffee in the big time, as they say? Jerry was a great worker. I mean, he, he, he was a great worker. You know, he was a little bit like, you know, Brad Armstrong in the sense that, you know, he, he was a great worker that just never really was able to cross over to the mainstream. He didn't, you know, he had amazing ring skills at the time, but his look and his charisma left a little bit to be desired. And I don't mean that as a, you know, some people, look, charisma is something you can't teach. You can't teach charisma. You, you can't learn it in a wrestling school. You know, you, you either are, are born with it, like you're born with an ability to play a violin or born with a musical ability. There's a reason why there's probably 250,000 great guitar players in the world or more, but there's only really one, you know, Eddie Van Halen. You know, there's only really one Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, and people like that because they just have this gifted ability that they're born with. And I think the same is true to a degree in, in wrestling, there's certain guys that just, you know, we know many of them who, you know, have got a ton of charisma, not the best workers in the world, John Cena, Hulk Hogan, but God damn, they've got such charisma that they connect with the audience in a, in a great way. And those guys don't think that they're the, the best technicians in the world and they don't do, you know, the crazy aerial shit or didn't do the crazy aerials in Hulk's case, crazy stuff that, you know, a lot of guys did because they didn't need to. And then you have the opposite of that. You have guys that who have all of that great physical ability and great skill sets in the ring, but for whatever reason, they just didn't get that gene and, and, and that strand of DNA, I guess, and don't have that magical thing we call charisma. And Jerry Lynn was one of those guys. Great technician, could do anything with anybody, but just never really quite got over Let's talk about the uh, next match. 13 minutes and 14 seconds is what's allotted for a DQ finish where Lex Luger beats Ming. Meltzer would say horrible match with an even worse finish. Ming hit Luger in the throat with a foreign object and had him pinned. But Kevin Sullivan ran in and kicked Luger, who was being pinned, causing Ming to, Ming to be disqualified for outside interference. And this, actual, uh, this angle actually made sense for later in the show. Uh, negative one star. What did you think when you watched... Luger and Ming go 13 minutes. It was horrible. It was really, really horrible. And to finish, you know, I was watching when I watched this match. And it, look, too big. You know, Luger is one of those guys who, you know, he 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 didn't make it big in in the business because of his, you know, skill sets in the ring. Right? He, he was what he was. Um, Ming was a character. You know, he was a big, badass, you know, scary looking character. He was not a great technician in the ring either. Um, and when you put two guys like that in the ring, especially big guys, you're going to get a slow, awkward, you know, painful match. And it, you know, it should have never gone, you know, if I was writing that show today, that match would have gone five to six and a half minutes, seven minutes tops. And that's with the schmas on the end. And, and what really confused me watching the match is, you know, watch Kevin Sullivan. If you're going to go back and watch this on a WWE network, which I really, you know, I don't push people to, you know, imbibe in beverages or herbs or, or, or anything else that's not good for you. But if you decide to do that on your own and watch this show on the WWE network, I wouldn't blame you because it's highly entertaining. But if you do, um, before you get too deep into whatever it is you're doing, take a look at Kevin Sullivan on the outside of the ring. 
he looks like he's waiting for a bus. I mean, he's just like, I mean, first of all, he's dressed like goofier than fuck. He looks like Flash Gordon, you know, in, in the gimmick outfit that he had on, which made no sense at all. And he's got whatever those decals or eyeliner or magic marker <laughs> tattoos things he he put up on, above his eyebrows, which I'm, you know, I have no idea what that was supposed to mean or why they did it. Um, but put that aside, and I love Kevin, by the way. I had a great time seeing Kevin at, at All In, and we did the death of WCW and the panel together, and we hadn't seen each other in a long time and gave each other a big hug and hung out together. And I really, really, really like and respect Kevin. But this particular iteration of his character was painful to watch. But if you watch him in this match as a manager or somebody who's supposed to be involved emotionally in what's going on, he looked more bored than half the people that were watching it. He was like leaning on one elbow with his feet kind of crossed and thumping away on the, on the ring apron. It's like, yeah, what am I doing here? That's exactly what it felt like. What the fuck is he doing there? Clearly he was there for the end, but you talk about a convoluted finish and, you know, yeah, it did play itself out in the end, but unfortunately those 7,000 people that paid or, whatever the number was, or 7,000 people that were in the arena, at least, um, didn't have a clue. You talk about disengaging an audience, because that shit made absolutely zero sense to anybody. You'd have to be watching so closely and have a detailed map of what was going to happen or a detailed plan of what was going to happen later on in the show. And even then, I'm not sure you'd get it, because it really didn't make all that much sense from a storytelling point of view. But that was that was typical of WCW and, and the style of booking that, that we saw so often in 93, 94, and even into 95. Then we see a very nervous giant, Paul White here. Uh, he's fairly awkward in the promo. you got to appreciate he's uh, greener than goose yet, as they say. And he's in a prime spot here. And what's being asked of him is to hype up the monster trucks. 3,000 horsepower, 12,000 pounds. So... He's just showing a lot of fury and laughing psychotically. And then we get to a match that a lot of people, uh, maybe saw the finish coming. We got sting and Ric Flair here taking on Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. And you can imagine what's going to happen here. Surprise. Ric Flair turns on sting, but it is a pretty good match. Three and three quarter stars here. Flair's working with a torn rotator cuff. Uh, that he suffered earlier in the week. He's not anywhere near a hundred percent, but he's still in there doing his best. What'd you think? I liked it. You know, I know people can pick it apart. There's, you know, different points of view, turning people too often and all that kind of thing. And I don't disagree with a lot of that, but go back and watch it again and watch, just watch the reaction of the crowd. You know, t take everything that you know or you think you know about what should and shouldn't happen in a match like that. Take all the arm, armchair, you know, booking out of the equation and just turn down the volume and just watch the crowd. And I think anybody, you know, that's objective will, will watch this and realize it worked pretty well for the house. It worked pretty well for TV or pay-per-view. Um, Sting worked his ass off. I mean, he really – I think this is – this was a great. This was a great match for Sting. I mean, he really stepped up. He and he had he had to work his ass off. Um, I 
I liked it. I, I really did. I mean, it's still a match that people still talk about. Of course, the story here is that the horsemen have turned against Ric Flair and he looks to the uh, last place you would think he would look for help and it's sting. And of course, uh, nope, the horsemen are still together and, uh, F you sting post-match Flair, Pillman and Arn are putting the boots to sting and Flair removes the bandage and Tony yells. It was all a lie. We need to get some policemen out here. This is beyond sick. This is demented. We go to Mean Gene, who says, it's the most despicable thing I've ever seen. And Flair cuts a promo. Now we go to school. The first thing you learn is to don't jump on double A. And uh, the horsemen are back. Meltzer would report a few weeks prior to this that the original idea was Flair, Anderson, and Pillman would turn on Sting at Havoc. But about a week or so prior to this, Sting changed his mind and thought it might make him look stupid. So they tried to discuss some other creative options to get out of this. Do you remember there being some debate about whether or not this was the right storyline and having to sort of, I don't know, placate Sting a little bit? I wouldn't have been. No, I don't remember, but I, it's not that I can't remember. It's I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been involved in that discussion or decision at the time. It's a cool thing to see the, the horsemen put back together. Of course, eventually Chris Benoit is going to add them to the group. Uh, or is going to be added to the group at this point. Are you doing it? Are you putting the horsemen back together just because it's what Rick wants to do or there's a merchandise opportunity or what's the thinking and putting them together 10 years later? Cause it works, you know, it worked it, just like Ric Flair always worked. You know, the horseman was still, look, you, you go back to again, 95, you know, so much of the audience for WCW was still, very familiar uh, and loyal to WCW as a result of the NWA and their relationship with all those characters, you know, the four horsemen and, and early WCW. Um, so go, you know, reforming the four horsemen is probably no different than reforming the shield today or reforming the NWO back in 2001 or whatever it was, WWE. Um, that kind of thing has always worked because the wrestling, you know this now as much time as you spend in the wrestling industry and going to shows and collectibles and all the things that you're involved in, obviously doing these podcasts. Um, wrestling fans have really, really long memories. And it's something that's not that hard to tap into and, and exploit, and, and I say that in a positive way, to take advantage of because they like it. They, they want to remember. you know, They want to relive those glory days. And the Four Horsemen, they were all still... These guys were all still real young and real physical and real active, and they could all cut great promos. So um, I wasn't wasn't because it was, you know, that's what Rick wants to do. Rick wasn't that way at all. Uh, it made sense for us because our our core audience was still that loyal TBS WCW NWA audience. So let's talk about. Uh, well, I mean, we're here. The sumo match. The sumo monster truck match. Meltzer would say it's actually a compilation of about a five minute live match and several hours worth of taping the previous night. They had two monster truck drivers doing the driving and they had Hogan and giant inside the truck faking like they were driving. And he says, if you notice all the, in the truck shots were identical and spliced in badly, which gave it the planet nine. Look the dungeon of doom truck looked cool. And, uh, then, of course, he makes a snide comment about Hogan's truck. He says, after the match, Hogan and the Giant argued and shoved and punched, and eventually 
The giant lost his balance on a ledge and was supposed to be overhanging Lake Michigan, although there is no part of the roof on Kobo Arena that overhangs the lake as there is a parking lot totally surrounding the building and plunged to his death, or so we were led to believe. And angles like this are the reason pro wrestling in this country is in the condition it's in. So that's the Meltzer take. Uh, what'd you think? So let me first address Dave's comments. Now, Dave certainly had strong opinions, probably still does, about what was wrong with the business, even though he's never really been in it, never really promoted anything, had no idea you know, what the mainstream audience was really looking for, but he had his opinion. So that being said, um, whatever, I guess. In, in terms of, you know, what did I think looking back at it? Again, I'm, <clears throat> I can't be 100% objective because I know why we did it. And as I've stated, I was excited about the potential that this particular piece of business might have provided WCW. In terms of licensing and merchandising and working with monster trucks and the team over at Bigfoot, all of that. And so were they, by the way. It wasn't just me. It was, you know, the people that own monster trucks were equally as excited about this thing because they felt the same way. So there was a reason to do it. Now, in terms of the execution of it, it was really hard to execute. There's no doubt about it. Nobody had ever done it before. So, you know, just the engineering in and of itself, you know, welding these two trucks together and doing a monster truck you know, events on top of a roof was tough. Keep in mind, you know, monster trucks typically operate, you know, on, on dirt and wheels spin and it's quite easy. It's, it's not difficult to manage or produce a, an event in. Up on top of a concrete deck, it's a lot tougher because those wheels got traction, which is why we had to wet the roof and try to convince everybody it had rained right before the event. But if we couldn't keep that that concrete really, really wet, um, those trucks really did have 3,000 horsepower, and we really would have had, you know, a serious issue. And yes, there were professional drivers in those trucks, and we had to do what they call in the industry a cowboy switch. Same thing kind of happened every time, you know, John Wayne would be riding along uh, in a gunfight and had to fall off his horse. It really wasn't John Wayne. Um, And we had to change out the professional drivers with, with our characters. So that part is true. In terms of, you know, the internal shooting inside the truck, you know, going back to Dave's comment, you know, you don't really have a lot of options. Watch watch NASCAR today. You know, you get one, and they've got a lot of different technology today than we had in 1995. You have GoPros that you can mount inside of a car that are, you know, no bigger than a salt shaker anymore, and you can get a lot of different angles. But you still, to this day, get very few real creative shots inside of a moving vehicle. Um, so we did the best we could with what we had, but I was excited about it. Looking back at it now, sure, 23 years later, goofy as fuck. Clearly the, the whole monster truck initiative didn't work, even though we were hoping it would. So there's a lot, a lot of reasons to look back at this and go, God almighty, why would anybody ever do that? But there's a reason why we did it. And you know what? If, it, if I was somehow transported back to, you know, August of 1995 and, was looking at the monster truck business and was looking at what little merchandising business WCW had or licensing, and the same opportunity presented itself, guess what I would do? I would do it again. Who's, uh, I mean, were you there when they were shooting it the night before? And Yeah, yeah, I was there. And Ellis Edwards, um, 
He was the one, you know, we don't talk a lot about Alice Edwards. He was the one, you know, Alice, I brought in, God, when did, I also brought Alice in around 1994. He was a stunt coordinator and a stunt man and really good at what he did. He, he And by the way, he currently works with WWE. Has for a long time, yeah. Yeah, he, he went over with the transaction at WCW and WWE. Um, and he's really good at what he does. Alice was the guy that created the Sting Repel and, and perfected that long before anybody else did it. Uh, so Alice was the guy, you know, the the referee, if you will, giving the instructions with a really, really severe, you know, Georgia mullet. Um, but Ellis is the one that really set that off. Ellis and the, the engineers from the monster truck team were the ones that really set, staged that shot. Um, so when you guys murder the giant, do you think, man, that's what we need? That's, that's good writing. That's, I like that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, Look, it was a big risk. It was a suspension of disbelief. Would I do that today? No. But I, if I was sitting around a table with a bunch of you know creative people who suggested anything remotely similar to that, I would you know I would escort them out of the room and take them back to catering and put an apron on them and teach them how to flip a burger. Today, but in the, at that time, you know, you know, this is not that far off from some of the goofy shit Undertaker did, you know. We're going to kill him. He's going to come back to life. That's right. The production value was much higher in, in The Undertaker's case. But, you know, it was a stretch. No doubt about it. You know, it, it was goofy. And it was a risk. But, eh, you can't justify it. It was stupid. I wish we wouldn't have done it. It was a, it was a bad risk. Um, but again, in the context of the times, it wasn't that ridiculous. No, it was. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Here yeah. I go again, trying to convince myself. Well, I mean, listen. No, the, it was ridiculous. Go ahead. They did the year prior, send the Undertaker, that they murdered the Undertaker at the Royal Rumble and sent him to heaven. He ascended to heaven. So, I mean, let's not say that the WWF was you know, too far above this. I mean, they're doing some of this silliness. And by the way, we got a ton of, uh, when I read that passage, uh, from the, uh, observer, when we did our giant show, uh, I, I did get a lot of feedback that wanted to correct me that Lake Michigan is not there. I, I'm aware. Uh, that's a, a Dave Meltzer thing where he's saying that Lake Michigan was not there. And that's what you guys said on the show that Lake Michigan was there. So Meltzer is telling you that Lake Michigan is not outside of the building, despite what WCW would have you to believe. I am not saying that Lake Michigan is outside of Kobo. Uh, let's talk about, uh, the next match. We got Randy Savage here, uh, getting a win over Luger five minutes and 23 seconds. Jimmy Hart comes to ringside. Uh, Meltzer would write Savage at least tried. When Luger had the match won, Hart distracted the referee, and then Luger went after Savage, but Savage moved. Luger collides with Hart. Savage hits the elbow off the top. And uh Meltzer writes, given what was happening later in the show, this finish made no sense. A quarter star. What'd you think? It's our second Savage match of the night. It's our second Luger match of the night. I thought two things in watching it back. Um, one is nobody got more camera time in WCW than Jimmy Hart. Yeah. He was everywhere. He was everywhere. If there was a camera, Jimmy Hart was there. End of conversation. 
that that was number one. Number two, the thing that stood out most to me, and again, it's the way I look at things now versus the way I, I would have looked at them 23 years ago. But if you go back and watch this on you know WWE Network, you know go back and look at that spot where Jimmy's got Nick Patrick, you know, occupied, and there's a false finish right next to Nick Patrick. You'd have to have like horse blinders on not to see what was going on in your peripheral vision. You wouldn't even have to have good peripheral vision. You you could have an absolutely fused neck and not even be able to turn your head and still see what was going on. And that's the type of thing when you know I look back at it now and, and think to myself, who laid these matches out? You know, what were they thinking? You know, versus the kind of I guess intense or more detailed thought process that I've experienced in the last 10 years or 15 years that I was in the business. And I look back at that now and go, God, how fucking sloppy was that? Right. Not only, not only to the, to the live audience, because certainly they can see it. You know, there were probably 40% of that audience that was actually facing the action when it was happening or, or reasonably close to facing it. It's probably looking at that going, well, what the hell? I mean, he can clearly the referee can see what's going on. Why is he ignoring it? And the minute that happens, you lose the audience. That spot, the entire sequence that led up to it, and that specific spot, not only didn't mean anything, it killed the entire match because you've just offended everybody. You've just made it so obvious that they they feel like idiots for even buying a ticket and watching it. And and again, that's the difference in the way I look at it today. If you would have asked me to watch this match 23 years ago and give me my opinion, it would have been a different opinion. But looking at it now, I just shake my head and go, what the fuck were they thinking? There was a lot of experience in that ring at that time, Nick included, Jimmy included, um, Lex and, and Randy included. <laughs> Why did they do that? They could have done it, you know, behind Nick's back and it wouldn't have been as painful to watch. Right. Jimmy was up there for too long. I mean, what was he reading? Like, you know, here, let me recite the U.S. Constitution to you while we're standing up here in the ring. You know? <laughs> hey, have you ever walked through the Bill of Independence? Let's take a walk through that. He was up there forever, for crying out loud. That spot could have been so much better. I know I'm picking on it. I don't need to spend so much time on something that is seemingly so insignificant, but that's kind of what happens when you watch, when you watch things back where I'm watching it back now. It's like, oh, my God. If you can't get the little shit right, it's no wonder we couldn't get some of the big shit right. Well, let's talk about the big shit. Here we are. The Giant beats Hulk Hogan by DQ. That goes 16 minutes and 57 seconds. Because it's a DQ, Hogan's going to keep the WCW title, but that's not going to keep the Giant from walking out with it and wearing it the next night on TV. Hogan comes out first, though, in street clothes to explain... Because of what happened to the giant, there can't be a match and he's pretty down about it. But of course the giant comes out and proves that he too is immortal because he fell off a building and, um, that didn't kill him, but a leg drop and a boot to the face might, that's what Meltzer says here in the observer. And he says, this is basically the Andre Hogan match from Pontiac redone with a different finish, except that this giant is a lot more mobile than Andre. And this Hogan has a lot less charisma than that Hogan did. Meltzer would say for a guy in his second pro match, White looked real good as far as poise. 
He didn't do anything impressive athletically. There were only two spots where you could see he was looking lost, which is kind of amazing for a guy under this kind of pressure in such a long match. Not that they did anything good. The announcers tried to sell it like it was Flair Steamboat, but it was anything but. After the Superman comeback, Hogan hits the leg drop. And then Jimmy Hart, using the title belt, knocks out referee Randy Anderson with the belt. Hogan, not seeing it, tells Jimmy to revive the ref. And the moment he turns around, he throws the ref down again. So as Hogan is pounding on the giant, Hart hits Hogan with the belt as well, but he didn't sell it. And when he goes after Hart, he's caught from behind by a deadly bear hug. Luger and Savage do the run in and then Hart hits Savage with the belt. Luger starts attacking Savage and Hogan. And then the fucking Yeti comes down. <laughs> You've been waiting for this for a week. <laughs> I cannot believe you did this. What you've done is you've taken Ron Reese and uh, wrapped him in toilet paper. And he's uh, three or four inches taller than the giant here. And they're doing a double bear hug on Hulk Hogan. And Meltzer would say, at least that's what I hope it was, because it looked more like a kinky sandwich. Yeti isn't supposed to be a mummy, but it's supposed to be an abominable snowman from the Himalayas. Well, they got it half right. Luger puts Hogan in the torture rack. Hogan and Savage are left laying as the Dungeon of Doom leaves the ring. It started as a great angle, but turned into something campy in the worst way when the guy wrapped up in toilet paper showed up and tried to have sex with Hogan. Giant leaves with the belt. Two stars. So there's a lot going on here. Jimmy Hart's a bad guy. Uh, Not only is he a bad guy, he's one of the most effective heels in the industry at this point. He's taking everybody out. He's unbelievable. He's dangerous, man. Lex Luger's a bad guy. Uh, the giant is here and he's, uh, back to life. He is, uh, he's come back to life and the, and this has been teased for a while here that we're going to see the Yeti, the dungeon of doom has been teasing this. And the Yeti is supposed to be, as Dave said, an abominable snowman, but I guess somewhere along the way, you guys decided, fuck it, wrap him up, make him a mummy. Tell me how this happened. How did we go from a snowman to a mummy? Kevin Sullivan. It's all his fault. It's all his doing. My good buddy, Kevin. I don't know. I, again, I, you know, clearly I approved it. My name's on it. I can't hide from it. Somewhere in an archive somewhere, there's a credit with my name as executive producer, so I got to take the heat. But <laughs> that was a fucking horrible thing to do to Ron Reese, to Hulk Hogan, to everybody that bought a ticket, to everybody that bought the pay per view. I mean, that was horrible. It was just, you know, the, the good thing about it is it's funny now. So you can go back, even if you got screwed out of, you know, you spent $60 buying a ticket or $39 buying a pay-per-view back in 1995. You can go back now, crack a six-pack, sit back, watch it, and have a good laugh. So there's value in it. Much more so now as a, as a piece of parody or comedy than anything else. But that was so bad. I, I mean, just, you know, and, and here's the thing, you know, the, the double bear hug, I don't know who came up with that thing. I don't know who came up with that. Don't know, don't want to know, actually. Because um, I have a hard time getting that, that out of my head. Um, but whoever it was should have realized that Arm, Ron Reese, as big as he was, 
had some of the shortest arms in the locker room. He had like Chris Benoit's arms. So there was no way, if you go back and watch it, that he couldn't even reach around and hug. He had to kind of like squeeze with his biceps, which made him look even kinkier. Wait, hang on. Did everybody know that he had short arms? Was that like something people were talking about? Yeah. So well, hang, on, hang, at, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I can look at any of his matches. Was this a, was, was wrapping him in toilet paper a rib? Like were his arms so short that people joked he couldn't wipe his own ass? No, no, there was nothing like that. No, for the Somebody purpose. Somebody actually thought that wrapping him up like a mummy. Yeah. Well, what are we going to do? Wrap him, what are we going to do? You know, mold him in snow? You know, so he looked like an abominable snowman. Does anybody, does, did Dave think that that would have been a better idea? Granted, the idea was horrible from the beginning. The inception should have never happened. So let's just make sure everybody well, understands that. But what else was the alternative? A fursuit. Like you could have made him like a, I mean, because the, the cartoon oh, character. Come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wrapping him in a furry costume like you did with the goddamn Wildcat Willie. That's crazy, but making a mummy, that's acceptable? No, I'm not saying it's acceptable. No. I mean, neither one of them would be good. They're both ridiculous. I don't think I don't think one would be arguably any more ridiculous than the other. I mean, I wouldn't advocate for a, a fursuit any more than I would advocate for wrapping them up as a mummy. I think one would be... Uh, it would be differently horrible. Is that a word? Differently horrible? How, how has no one reached out to Tony Schiavone to endorse Yeti coolers after all these years? Fuck him. We should do <laughs> well, he, He's the one who did the, the Yeti. And I don't, I mean, it, it, he spells it Y-E-H dash T-A-Y with the way he pronounced it. And he said that no one told him to pronounce it that way. He was just trying to come up with something. Right. You know, let's mention this too. Um, Giant Gonzalez, the former Elegante, there's all sorts of rumor and innuendo that they were searching for a giant for a three ring, three ring, three giant battle royal. And the idea was to have Ron Reese, the giant, and Elegante here. Uh, did you ever? consider or were you ever pitched by kevin sullivan or anybody else about bringing back giant gonzalez the former elegante you know it sounds familiar i think I, you know i don't think it was a pitch i think there was some discussion you know again everybody this was still back in the day when everybody you know thought giants you know ruled the world and you could make tons of money with giants it's one of the reasons paul white went to wwe and got a one million dollar a year contract for ten years, which we discussed last week or the week before. So it, it wasn't, you know, at that time, you know, Giants still were kind of like, wow, we needed, you know, we need the three biggest guys we can find in the business. I do recall some conversation about El Gigante, but you know, keep in mind he had been there before uh, in WCW and super good guy, but there were challenges with him, and I don't think anybody was really too excited about it. So while there may have been conversations, we're not serious. Real question. Um, when you guys were putting together the whole bear hug thing, I mean, let's just call it like it is. The Yeti was butt fucking Hulk Hogan. No, he wasn't. I don't say that, man. I don't say that. Uh, no, this, you, you guys are in a rough spot after this. Meltzer would say this is Hogan's final WCW match until February or March. And while there were apparent communication between Hogan and the WWF for him to go in in 96, 
If WCW felt there was any seriousness to the chance of this happening, there is no way they would have kept the belt on him. And it's doubtful. Jimmy Hart was going to shoot an angle against Hogan unless they all had long-term plans of staying put. This show was somewhat reminiscent of the 1990 clash where flair turned heel on sting and then sting blew his knee out doing the angle and the turn left WCW without any baby faces with everyone turning heel and now Hogan being gone for a while. Plus Savage is working with a serious injury. They've got sting and nothing else. They're building a charismatic four horsemen heel team and an unbelievably uncharismatic dungeon of doom team. But who are they all going to wrestle? especially since all the new Japan wrestlers coming in this week are also going to be heels. Uh, Bruce has talked about the fact that, you know, Hulk would reach out to uh, Vince McMahon and try to have a meeting and he would want to do it in public with the idea of leveraging one side against the other to get a, a better deal. Did you think that there was any chance Hogan was leaving or was that all just pomp and circumstance to secure a better deal? No, I, I, I didn't, I didn't buy into that at all. I didn't buy, and I don't know why. I just. You read the tea leaves. No, no, but it, look on, on the tail of the steroid trial, and you know the animus, and hard feelings, bad press, all the shit that was said back and forth. Um. If there was any suggestion or implication or attempt to make you believe that it could happen, I didn't register with me. I just didn't believe it. It wasn't until, you know, a year or two after this, um, when I think it was 97 or 98, but it must have been 97, Hogan's contract actually was up, and he flat out told me, him and I were having a beer in Denver, um, and he said, look, Vince is coming into town tonight. I'm going to go over and meet him. I don't think anything's going to happen. I'm going to hear what he has to say, and we'll go from there. And he told me he was going to do it. He wasn't trying to be cute and creative and, you know, work an angle, brother. He wasn't doing any of that stuff that people accuse him of so, so often. He, he told me he was going to do it. And after after his meeting with Vince, he came back, and we had another beer, and he told me about the meeting, and he told me he wasn't going to go. So, so much, I think, has been written some of it maybe somewhat accurate. A lot of it is this fabrication about you know, Hogan trying to work both ends against the middle. Um, By the way, there's nothing true. wrong with that. I feel like people villainize that, but geez, everybody looks for a better deal. Do you not think that's what Cody and the Bucks and Kenny Omega and everybody's about to do come January? Like, man, this is big business. I mean, you don't think Chris Jericho's doing that right now? Of course he is. I mean, no, it, it is part. You know, it's our industry. It is, but it's just business. It's, it's, to your point, though, Conrad, does anybody think Vince McMahon or Triple H don't recognize that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, do, 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 do whoever is trying to shoot their angle actually think that Vince and Triple H went, "Oh my God, these guys may go do something else. We better, we better move quick." Right. We've all seen it. We've all been through it. We've all been guilty of participating in it in one way, shape, or form. To your point, so yeah, nothing wrong with it. I just think that it's been, with regard to Hogan and myself and WCW and his tenure there, I think it's been written about much more than it actually happened. Well, let's uh, let's have you rate it. You know, the Wrestling Observer Reader poll said that the uh, best match actually happened on the pre-show, which was Benoit and Malenko against Regal and Eaton. The best match on the pay-per-view, though, 
was Sting and Flair versus Anderson and Pillman. The worst match across the board, everybody agreed, was Lex Luger and Ming. Uh, overall, it got 23% thumbs up, 70.6% thumbs down, and 6.4% thumbs in the middle. What say you? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Well, I'm way thumbs down on this one. <laughs> way thumbs down. You know, even if I would have gone back and watched it, you know, right after it happened, I would have had to give it a thumbs down. And, I, and believe me, I wouldn't have watched it with as nearly of a critical eye in terms of the in-ring stuff as I do now. But just storyline-wise, the nonsensical finishes, Jimmy over-the-top Jimmy Hart, you know, getting all the heat in the industry, and it just it, it didn't, none of it made a lick of sense to me. It's a definite thumbs down. Do you but see? Goddamn, but goddamn, it's funny. You can get a yuck out of it. Like I said, sit back with a beverage or whatever it is of your choice, and and at least you can laugh. It's funny that you're able to uh, look back now and see so clearly, you know what should have been done or shouldn't have been done. And let's do a couple of questions here. We uh, we took to Twitter, wanted to know if you guys had any questions for Eric here about Halloween Havoc '95 and. The first question comes from the great Corey Graves. That's right. WWE's Corey Graves. Hey, Corey. Whoa. And he wants to know, how was the giant not recognized as the first ever zombie world champion asking for a friend? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know who the zombie committee is. You know, it's a mystery to me, but clearly he, he, he should have, he should, he should be recognized, particularly over Halloween. You know, for being able to come back to life and, and not only perform, but, you know, perform in a three-way. Bad Money Slim wants to know, do you have any good Colonel Park, Colonel Robert Parker jump rope stories? No, I've heard them all, though. Um, <laughs> you know, <I> didn't... <laughs> Sherry Martell used to tell me a few, <laughs> and she was good at telling them, too. Uh, no, I've heard them all, but I don't have any, have any of my own. Thank goodness. Ted Baker wants to know, whatever happened to those monster trucks? You know, they went back to uh, the – Bob Chandler was the guy uh, at Bigfoot. You know, back in the day, in the, at this time in 95, he was the biggest name in the monster truck business. And uh, they were his trucks, his bodies, and they actually were part of the monster truck uh, tour for a while. Uh, we actually, you know, we followed through and we were going to try to do a bunch of different things with monster trucks, with these trucks, personal appearances and that type of thing. But it never really got off the ground. It was a, it was a, it was a great idea that was poorly executed. What a tremendous question here. Uh, Chris Bynum wants to know if the, uh, picture that's floated around of the dungeon of doom where Kamala's in the back and earthquakes there and uh, they've got Kevin Sullivan and I mean the, the whole dungeon of doom lined up. Is there a better before photo for DDP yoga ever? <laughs> uh, no, no. But it, you know, when I saw that again, watching the show back today, they used a lot of, uh, you know, they recapped a lot of things that happened on WCW Saturday night. Right. And there was a Dungeon of Doom recap package in there or, or throwback pa- recall package. And that Dungeon of Doom, I mean, that's again, that's some, that's some chemi- chemically induced stuff right there. That that could not have been clear thinking people that came up with that. Somebody had to be partying and making that up. I think Cameron Hall 
had the same line of thinking most of us did. If the giant survived falling from the roof of a building, why the fuck is he selling a back rake from Hulk Hogan who's wearing gloves? Are we really supposed to believe that Hogan scratching his back with gloves on is going to hurt when he just fell off of a building? Yeah, there, therein lies, therein lies the essence of everything that was wrong with this pay per view, and, and it, not just with this match. I mean, it's easy to pick this match apart for so many different reasons, but when, when you look at the psychology and the logic or lack thereof um, throughout the entire show. None of it made sense. Going back to the Lex Luger, um, uh, the match with uh, Ming, you know, and Kevin Sullivan with the golden spike. You know, it's just so much of it made absolutely no sense at all that um, it would be hard to rate the nonsensical nature of it. If you had to make a list of all the things that made no sense at all, not only didn't make sense, but were actually probably responsible for people becoming mind-numb to what they were seeing. It's one thing for it not to make sense to people go, wait a minute, I'm not sure I get that. It's another thing to make people go, what in the hell was that? You know, and there was so much of that on the show that it would be hard to rate him on. He's uh, pretty quickly repackaged here, the Yeti is. And um, the next gimmick for him is the super giant ninja. How does that happen? Oh. <laughs> we were all in the back. And we said, look, the toilet paper gimmick sucked. There's no sponsor involved. Charmin tissue isn't coming to our rescue. There's not a big Slim Jim check, you know, nothing <laughs> like that. So we, we, we can't sell this shit to a toilet paper sponsor. So maybe we can make him a super ninja. That's, I mean, yeah, that's well, how that happened. You know, it would be great if uh, you guys tried to sell a sponsorship to a toilet paper company, and if they said no, you just used them anyway, but you used it against them. So if it was like Charmin, he was like, let me tell you something, brother. I'm the Charmin Yeti, and that'll take shit off anybody, dude. <laughs> <laughs> or that, or he could do like rub, rub his forearm in, in his opponent's eyes and a, the toilet paper was so rough, you know, and he, he could juice a little bit and break out into into a bloodbath. And there's all kinds of things you could do. It's amazing. I can't believe that. Uh, Where were you when I needed you, brother? The, Where were you? Oh, you were 12. Y- yeah, I, I think I was I was 14 when this happened. But you know what? I probably could have done better than this. Super Giant Ninja? That sounds like something a 12-year-old thought up. So, you know, overall, man... Uh, What's your favorite Halloween Havoc of all time, and why is it 1990? Was it 1990? I wasn't there. I know, but it was the best one. You should go watch it. I think you came in and killed Halloween Havoc. That's what I think. (laughs) No, seriously. You know, it's weird because these shows are so different. I would almost challenge everybody to watch Halloween Havocs in a row, and you can see the evolution of the product and, you know, where they sort of lose their way for a little bit. And, 93 you had that phenomenal cactus jack vader match where they're just basically murdering everybody and then the next year you've got a retirement match with rick flair hulk hogan and then this silly shit in 95 but next year you're gonna be macho man hulk hogan piper's coming back you're in vegas the following year it's well it is age in a cage but it's still Rey mysterio and eddie guerrero and one of the best matches ever there's just so much more great to come from wcw but Revisiting 1995, 
hard to really see it all here. Where would you rank this whole? We killed the giant, and then we had the Yeti come in in the list of worst ideas in WCW history. Is it top five? No, it has to be top five. I'd have to think about it, you know, for a little while because there's a lot, there's a lot of ground to cover there. If you're talking about all of the all of WCW of all time, there was a lot of really horseshit ideas. So you'd really have to, to, to be fair. You have to give it some thought. But without giving it any thought at all, we still have to. He is E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.